This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now, there is some debate about the dating of this document. So if you read a New Testament introduction, for example, or any book on New Testament canon, uh, they will no doubt point out to you that there is a lot of scholarly debate as to whether or not this really does originate in the late second century or some subsequent period. Uh, I only say that if it is late second century as it purports, then it is a strong confirmation of what I have said about Marcion's uh, notion that there's already an already existing, for practical purposes, a New Testament canon. Uh, the Muratorian canon makes uh, a list of New Testament books, uh, and it represents the New Testament canon, 180 to 200 A.D., one that seems to have been, at least practically speaking, at use in the church in Rome in this period, late second century. Incidentally, this, uh, this canon was discovered first in 1740 by an Italian, Muratori, and so it now has the designation uh, based upon the man who discovered this ancient manuscript, the Muratorian uh, Canon. 1740. So, uh, in Italy someplace, an Italian uh, archive. If you've ever been to Italy, I'm telling you, you go into an, an old library or an archival place, and there are stacks of, of stuff that no human eye has seen for 500 years. I mean, it is. It is. If you're if you're that kind of person who likes uh, that kind of stuff, the, the musty smell of books and uh, Latin manuscripts, it's a it, Italy's the place to go. Uh, that that's. I love Italy. <laughs> I love you know. It's, I'm I'm odd, I suppose, because I do love that musty smell. I, I really do. Reminds me of books. Anyway. The value of the Muratorian canon is that it does give us a list in use uh, by the church in Rome. Listen to what it includes. The four Gospels and Acts. Thirteen Pauline epistles. And then it also includes Jude, John, and the book of Revelation. And if this is right, we're talking now late second century. Uh, yes. Yes, there's some date, uh, some debate about whether or not second and third John were viewed as one writing as opposed to two. So it's possible that this does not have all the epistles of John in it. But there's again, that's a matter of debate. What is important is that some of the epistles of John at least, if not all, seem to be referred to in this uh, Muratorian canon. 
All this is to say that this particular list closely approximates our New Testament canon today. And except for 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews and James, it is in effect the same New Testament canon that we have. Now there are a couple of, of anomalies as well. You can still see that we're in process because the Muratorian canon also accepts a writing called the Apocalypse of Peter. It also recommends the Shepherd of Hermas, which we mentioned uh, some weeks back, uh, as recommended reading for churches. So, although it includes, by and large, the same New Testament canon, it does have a few extra writings. And remember I, I said to you that the early church still felt, uh, it was, it's difficult sometimes for the church to decide which are the, the true works and which are not. There's a process that takes place here. So for a period of time, some churches accept works that we have decided are non-canonical and that are not canonical. At any rate, we have practically the same New Testament canon as we found there in the Muratorian canon. Also, Irenaeus, E here. Uh, we find further confirmation. Uh, he essentially maintains the same list as the Muratorian canon. He has the four Gospels, Acts. All of Paul's letter letters, except for Philemon, 1 Peter, 1 John, and the book of Revelation. So it does pretty closely approximate, which lends a degree of credibility to the Muratorian canon, if there's a, a close overlap here, which would suggest it is dated to be dated as, as fairly early. And also note that in Irenaeus' writings, we find a reference to the Shepherd of Hermas. And the Shepherd of Hermas, like the Muratorian canon, is referred to as, quote, scripture. But it's used a little bit differently, so you get the impression from Irenaeus that it's, it's something to be valued but it's not quite on the same par with the Gospels or the writings of Paul. So you find pretty much the same kind of attitude in Irenaeus that you find in the Muratorian canon. Third, Origen. Or third, I mean F, Origen. Writing about 230 A.D., early 3rd century now. And he too has a list or refers to certain writings. Uh, he accepts the same books as Irenaeus, as undisputed, but he also adds Hebrews. Second Peter, second and third John, James and Jude. And <laughs> The Epistle of, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, were other works that are non-canonical. I'll mention some of those non-canonical ones. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, and the Gospel according to Hebrews. Did you get all those? Yes or no? Okay, do that again. Origin talking now early 3rd century. And essentially he has the same list as Irenaeus and the Muratorian canon, 
but he does include also Hebrews, uh, which we'll note has been uh, is disputed all the way through the third and fourth century by some folk. Second Peter, second and third John, James, and Jude. He accepts those as canonical, but he does uh, also include Barnabas, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, and the Gospel according to Hebrews. So what we can see then is by the early 3rd century that by and large most Christians recognize essentially the same New Testament canon. There are some debated questions. There are some extra writings that are attached. So we see that by Origen's time there was a general agreement about the great majority of New Testament books. Still, there was a margin of doubt about a few that were later actually included in the canon. And then at the beginning of the 4th century, I know I'm going fairly fast here, but I, but I, I want to be brief. I'm assuming that you have covered at least some of this in your New Testament intro classes. So am I right in that? Is that right? I say, okay, you get, they say, you get this in history, okay. <laughs> yeah, I really debated because I, I had, this is stuff I got in, in New Testament intro classes. And I, I, it's where it belongs. It's in the, in the reading. In the reading. Okay. Well, that, I mean, we can, one class can reinforce another class. Anyway, let's go. Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius is, is very significant for our purposes uh, he has uh, compiles a list as well, and you can see, can't you, that you know from late second, third, now early fourth century, we're seeing these people are very conscious of lists. They're, they're, they are mindful of a collection out there. Now the question is, what is in the collection precisely? Still a little bit of doubt about a few, but the, by and large, it's it's pretty much recognized. Uh, it's pretty much. Uh, Agreed as to what the content are, is of the New Testament canon. Now he distinguishes basically three classes of sacred writings, and he also includes a fourth category he calls heretical books. So three classes. The first is the homologumena. <laughs> you can spell that. Spellings up here, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-U-M-E-N-A. These are books that are universally agreed upon by the 4th century church. And essentially it's 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament canon. So we can see that we've moved right along here and it's pretty solid in terms of, of uh, the New Testament canon quickly to mention a few of these. The four Gospels, Acts, the 13 Epistles of Paul. And of course, when you have the four Gospels and Acts and the Epistles of Paul, you've got, you know, 85, 90% of the New Testament. So you were, the early church was in pretty good shape, uh, certainly by the middle of the second, third century. So the Gospels, Acts, Epistles of Paul, Hebrews... 1 Peter, 1 John, and the book of Revelation. 
Now, having mentioned that Eusebius includes the book of Revelation, but he does something rather odd. While he includes it in the Hologumena, I'll let you just spell it. It's <laughs> spelled for you. In Texas, tongues are made differently than other places. There are certain words that we don't pronounce well, and that's one of them. At any rate, the book of Revelation, he includes also in those books that are universally acknowledged, but then he also says it's a, it's a questionable book. At the same time, so Eusebius of Caesarea is inconsistent when it comes to the book of Revelation. On the one hand, he says it's acknowledged. On the other hand, he says it's doubtful. So we need to sort of suspend uh, in this list the book of Revelation because it would seem to belong to another category. He also mentions Hebrews. And he mentions that uh, some people accept it and that some Christians have rejected the book of Hebrews. So it too, uh, there is a little, uh, some question of doubt about whether or not it should be universally, is universally acknowledged by uh, Christian churches. So those are the books that are universally acknowledged. And they are 22 of the 27. We're talking 90%. The second class, the second category, or the anti-legomena, anti-legomena, that is, those books about which there is some debate, yet mostly accepted in the churches, the anti-legomena, books about which there is some dispute, but for the most part are still accepted in most churches. There are five of these books. James, Jude, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter. And I think we need to also include here Hebrews and Revelation because he does put them in two categories and there's, uh, there does appear to be some element of doubt about each of these two. So James, Jude, Second and Third John, Second Peter, and then Hebrews and Revelation. I think we're all pretty clear, aren't we? Why Hebrews? There took it was a, a period of time why it was somewhat difficult to include Hebrews in the canon. Why there was some doubt. People they became convinced. I mean, there were some questions whether or not Paul actually wrote Hebrews or not. And if and if he didn't write it then there's no apostolic authority. The fact that it's an unknown author created doubt in the minds of a lot of folk. The book of Revelation, well, there are a lot of people today who, even, who still think that the book of Revelation is, is perhaps not in the canon because it is difficult to interpret, uh, full of dramatic imagery. Uh, and some even thought that back then that it's Kiliism, that is, it's premillennial ideas, uh, Apparently, the book of Revelation, some thought uh, because they didn't like premillennialism that they therefore would reject the book of Revelation, at least have doubts about whether or not it was canonical. Yes. Yes. 
So you have books that are universally acknowledged, about 90% of the New Testament. Then you have some books about which there is some debate, but pretty much accepted by most. And then you have the third category are spurious books. Those books that were read in the churches, some churches thought they were canonical, but most were a little bit doubtful about that. Spurious books are those that some felt were useful in the church, accepted by some as canonical, but for the most part there was at least a significant measure of doubt. Let me list just a few of these. The Epistle of Barnabas was one of those, which Eusebius felt was useful, but not necessarily canonical. The Epistle of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians, which you mentioned earlier. The Epistle of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians. The Shepherd of Hermas. The Didache. And the Apocalypse of Peter. Just to name a few. The Apocalypse of Peter. There were others. That books, and these are all books that Eusebius felt they were pious, useful, but not canonical, by and large. And then finally, the last category. These are books that Eusebius says are heretical and ought to be excluded and are excluded from Orthodox churches. It refers there to the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, all of these, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Andrew, and the Acts of John. Uh, what you find is if you read some of these documents having had some awareness of the New Testament canon, it is patently obvious that these do not uh, belong in the New Testament canon. The stories are fanciful. Uh, and if you have any grounding in, in uh, the New Testament canon itself, it's, it's the church pretty much understood that these didn't fit. They were clearly... Uh, did not belong, and the church acknowledged that. Do you have a question? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'll find, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, in fact, there, there are a whole slew of books out there that will refer to the Gospel of Thomas in particular as uh, a writing that will discredit Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. So it, it clearly runs counter to uh, the New Testament canon and are declared heretical. Uh, the one I mentioned the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Andrew, and the Acts of John, and the Gospel of Thomas are four examples of books that were recognized as heretical. Bear in mind now, I mean, there are... There are Gnosticism still hasn't died in the third, fourth century. 
And there are people out there who who identify with Christianity broadly but take a Gnostic bent. And so they are created, they're following the example of the apostles. They're writing letters and they're writing gospel accounts. But according to their own and heretical viewpoints. I guess the gospel of Thomas and Peter aren't shown to be apostolic writings. Right, obviously. They're not. I think it's pretty obvious when you when you read through them. Would you uh, repeat again the time frame for the dates for this uh, I just said fourth century. Early fourth century. Yes. He, he included it among the spurious books. And what he meant by spurious books the Shepherd of Hermas and the Didache. But the Shepherd of Hermas is, is a book that he felt was pious and useful, just like he would go out and read a, you know, a book by a popular Christian writer today. You would, most churches would say, that's a good thing to do. It's, it's a useful book, but it's not canonical. Well, that's the way Eusebius would have looked at the Shepherd of Hermas. Else was. Most of the other folks also excluded it from the canon but they almost all of them felt it was a useful uh, writing, non-canonical writing. We we actually read from the Didache in this class, and you got a sense of of, of some of these early writings. So they're not anti-Christian; they're just not canonical. Okay, now let's look at H. Athanasius. Athanasius, A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. Here we find towards the end of the 4th century a list from Athanasius in which our 27 books of the New Testament corresponds exactly with the list of Athanasius. The same 27 books, no extras, just the 27. The first official document, and I say that, I say official because I, I want to underscore that for all practical purposes, the New Testament in use was pretty much the same one we have now. There was some debate about a few, but anyway, by the, by the end of the 4th century, you have this statement from Athanasius. It's called Athanasius's Easter Letter of 367 A.D. 367 A.D. The Easter letter of Athanasius. And here he lists the 27 books of our New Testament as alone canonical. We find two confirmations. There was a synod in Hippo in 393, 393, and a synod of Carthage in 397, which affirmed precisely the same 27 books of Athanasius, which corresponds exactly with our 27 books. Incidentally, Augustine himself was present at both of these two synods 
and put his stamp of approval on those 27. 397. Where was I? Oh, I know what I was going to say. Just, just to make this as clear as I can, the church councils ratified the general consensus of the churches with regard to the canon. They ratified what had already been established in practice for nearly two centuries. The bottom line then was that these 27 books were included in the canon because of their inherent authority, which is recognized by the church. I'll say that again. The bottom line was that the, these 27 books were included in the New Testament canon because of their inherent authority, because their inherent authority was recognized by the church. The books did not acquire their authority because they were included in the canon. You get the difference? Their authority was inherent. The authority of those particular 27 books was not given by the council. It was merely recognized an already inherent authority in those books. Defining the Trinity. By way of intro, if you look over the course of church history, there have been two periods in general where there was a really intense concentration on defining key doctrines. And those two periods were the Reformation period. In the Reformation period, one of the key doctrines that's at stake is soteriological kinds of things, particularly with regard to justification by faith alone. But then the other key period in which uh, key fundamental doctrines of the church are established occurred in the 4th, 5th century. And one of the first and one of the most important ones has to do with the Trinity. So, I'm looking at a turning point. This is the point at which uh, uh, there are, and I'll mention this in just a minute, there are some, there's a period of time when the church is struggling to grapple with what do we mean by God is one and God is three. Now, I think we can all understand why that would have been a very difficult question to resolve. And that's why you have about three centuries of people making attempts coming close to, but not quite attaining to, a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity. Now, at about the same time, simultaneously with the formation of the New Testament canon, the church is grappling with this fundamental idea of the Trinity. And the key question initially was this. What was the precise relationship of the Son to the Father? Now, by and large, the Holy Spirit doesn't occupy center stage in these early discussions. Some folk will talk more about the Holy Spirit 
And of course, in the baptismal formulas, when you baptize someone in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, of course, is always included. But when it comes to these, these discussions and the various views, the key issue is between the relationship of the Father and the Son. And it's a natural first question. At first blush, it appeared to some that Christians worshipped more than one God. Now, the Christians, of course, said, yes, we do worship one God, but we also acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth as God. So, people wanted to know, how can you Christians claim to affirm that there's only one God, and yet you baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What's wrong with you people? Well, this is a question that needed an answer, really from the very beginning. It's a complicated question. Let's look at the historical context, too. I think, again, it's very obvious why this is a question that needed to be answered as soon as the period of persecution began to, to, to die down. You know, in, in the period of, of persecution, it's, it's kind of hard to sit and to reflect upon how three can be one when somebody is after you with, with fire or with whatever else. Uh, the period of persecution was not a period of reflection. It's a period of running, trying to hide or, or being martyred, whatever the case may be. So, this is a question, uh, the question of the Father and the Son and the relationship that, in fact, was one that you find evidences of even before the persecution, even during the persecutions from time to time. Now, one explanation that emerged early on, one that we now understand to be wrong, but it's an attempt to grapple with how God is three and how God is one. And the general designation is called monarchianism. Monarchianism. These are people who have the fundamental presupposition, this is where they put all of their weight, is on the idea that God is one. And that is their fundamental Stress. God is numerically and personally a unified being. That is the first presupposition of the monarchians. Now the word monarchian means rule by one. And again, the emphasis is on the singularity of God. Now if we're looking for a modern day equivalent of a monarchian, Roughly equivalent would be a Unitarian. So you see there's nothing new under the sun. Now according to the different conceptions, there were basically two types of monarchians. First, we'll talk about the dynamic monarchians. Now in order to maintain the oneness of God... Some monarchians, like modern-day Unitarians, deny the deity of Christ. The reason we call the, these monarchians dynamic is because the Greek word dynamis means power. So these are the 
power monarchians. Christ, they said, is the power, the dynamis of God. Not God, but the power and dynamis of God. The first major representative of this particular viewpoint was Theodotus. And some of you who had my class in Systematics 1 will remember this name, I'm sure. Theodotus <laughs> was a person who came to Rome, uh, I think 2nd century, I don't have the dates offhand. Yeah, late 2nd century. And he was one of those persons who belonged to the group we called the lapsed. Who were the lapsed? Those were those people who during times of persecution gave in and worshipped the emperor. They lapsed and they denied their Lord or by implication denied Christ because they acknowledged the emperor. Now, Theodotus was interesting because his response after had the persecution died down, he came back to the Christian church and he says, he says, I only denied Jesus the man. I didn't deny Jesus the Christ. So he makes a big distinction between Jesus the man and Jesus the Christ. He denied the man, but he said, I did not deny the Christ. Very clever. He gained some followers and then was excommunicated by the church at Rome in 202 A.D. Theodotus was excommunicated in 202 A.D. Here is his version of dynamic monarchianism. He acknowledged that Jesus was virgin born. There's a miraculous birth. But Jesus, nevertheless, was a mere man. Jesus, he says, was a mere man. He acknowledges that Jesus the man possessed the highest moral virtue. Very, the highest moral virtue. But Christ's deity was only a power, a dynamis, which had been communicated to him at his baptism. When the dove descended upon Jesus, a power from above was conferred on him, a dynamis from God. And as a result of this conferral of dynamis, of power, upon him at his baptism, Jesus then had the power to perform miracles. Still a man, human being like everybody else, but something miraculous happened at his baptism. When the dove came down, he was zapped with dynamis. And now he's able to perform miracles. But he did acknowledge the virgin birth. That's right. I mean, what you have are these folks who, who, who have these gospel accounts, one or all four. And so they're aware of what Orthodox Christians are teaching. And so they incorporate. I mean, that's sort of, the, you know, most heresies down through the ages possess a significant amount of truth. That's what's so dangerous about heresies is they do possess elements. The second, more fully developed 
uh, version of the dynamic monarchianism is that developed by Paul of Samosata. Now, Paul of Samosata was not only the bishop of Antioch, but he was also a government advisor. He mixed politics and religion. Tisk, tisk. Paul of Samosata was an advisor to Queen Zenobia. That's a good name. I like that name. Uh, queen Zenobia was queen in one area, what is modern-day Syria in the Middle East. So he served as a, as a counselor to her, but he also was a bishop. Paul of Samosata developed his own form of dynamic monarchianism. This is what he said. He said there's only one God. And that one God, remember he's a Unitarian, a monarchian, one God, and that's the Father, God the Father. And therefore, of course, Jesus cannot be God in the same sense as God the Father. There's only one ultimate supreme God, and that's God the Father. So he says Jesus, point, sub point two, was a mere man. But a man to whom God gave, God the Father gave a special blessing. And in some ways, like Theodotus, God bestowed upon him the divine logos. L-O-G-O-S. What was this logos, you ask? The logos was an impersonal power, an impersonal dynamis from God the Father. In some ways, it's like an attribute, God bestowing some of His attributes miraculously upon this man, giving him the ability to perform miracles, great wisdom. Now, he talks about the Logos, this power, this dynamis, which is bestowed upon the man Jesus. And as a result, he calls Jesus various, gives him various titles. He is called the Son of God because he's been this, this power, this impersonal power has been bestowed upon him. In fact, this Logos is impersonal because it's, it's sort of like reason. I've used this analogy before. But just as reason is uh, an attribute of humans, it's, it's not personal. Logic, uh, uh, reason is, is abstract, kind of. It doesn't have a personality. But we all have it. And it's, it's, a, it's an attribute. And it's sort of likened, this impersonal dynamis. has no personality, but it's, just, it's something akin to reason, a power that is given to Jesus the man. So this, he's also called the Son, but he is not in any way considered a distinct person in the Godhead. Jesus is a man. Uh, he also possesses, he has the title of wisdom. So Jesus is called the Son sometimes. He's also sometimes called wisdom. Again, an attribute of God the Father that is bestowed upon this man. And this is a wis this wisdom, for example, or some of these attributes have also been bestowed upon others in times past. 
he specifically mentions Moses as someone on whom God bestowed the dynamis of wisdom, the power of wisdom, this attribute. But Jesus is somewhat different from Moses because this dynamis of God dwells in Jesus in a more intensive way than ever before. It's, more, it's in a more intensive degree than has ever been in any other person before. Says Paul of Samosata. So although basically the same thing has happened with regard to people like Moses, Jesus isn't the first one to have this power bestowed upon him. But Jesus is the one in whom or on whom this power has been most intensively been uh, given this power. Now, what happens as a result of this power being given to the man Jesus, Jesus then, uh, as a result, reaches moral perfection. Moral perfection. perfect wisdom, perfect love, and so forth. And as a result of his attaining this moral perfection, God then adopts Jesus and exalts him to divine status. So he is a man who became a God. It needs to be stressed Jesus, even though he has been ex- this, this status of divinity has been bestowed upon him, he never attains the same level with the Father. There's still one supreme God. Jesus is a man who has been exalted to a lesser but nevertheless divine status. And of course, in the course of Jesus' life, uh, this this divine status is gradually his moral perfection and his divine status is gradually acquired throughout the course of his life. Incidentally, this idea of Jesus being adopted, this man Jesus being adopted by God, has a technical term attached to it. It's called adoptionism, and that's simply another way of talking about how. God adopted a man and exalted him to divine status, the divine status of sonship. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about Paul of Samosata, when he talks about Jesus, the man who attained moral perfection and is then granted divine status, he is willing to describe Jesus as homoousia, which is that phrase which means the same substance with the Father. And later on, this word will become very, very significant. But it's clear that even though Paul of Samosata uses the word, the same substance, homoousios, he means something very different by it than later Orthodox Christians. And again, this raises all kinds of interesting uh, uh, questions because why was it that Orthodox Christians adopted the language of a known heretic. Other people have used it. But here we have a case of a heretic using it. That's what's really significant about it. Now, again, let me emphasize, he means something quite different than later when, later Orthodox Christians. 
But the problem, it seems to me, that if I'm you know, in the 4th century and I'm trying to formulate a doctrine of the Trinity, the one thing I'm going to try to do is avoid using language that might be misunderstood, particularly language that had been used by a heretic. Well, Samuel Sada created a stir. A synod was held, a synod in Antioch in 268-269 A.D., Paul was accused of heresy and excommunicated. The only problem is, remember Queen Zenobia, his his queen to whom he acted as, uh, for whom he acted as a counselor. Well, he was still in favor with her, even if he was out of favor with the church. So the church couldn't do anything about uh, his him. Uh, being uh, formally recognized as the bishop of Antioch. So for a couple of years after he was excommunicated, he still functioned as the bishop. But then a couple of years later, uh, 272 AD, finally he was forced uh, to leave uh, Antioch. Thereabouts, yeah. There's still various, you know, right. no local persecutions. There was no mixing of the state with the church. At this point, no. So what, she had to be a personal friend. Just, oh, okay, so they're just buds. Mm-hmm, just buds. It happens from time to time. Now, I said there were two types of monarchianism. The first we call dynamic monarchianism. The second we call modalistic monarchianism. Modalistic. Another term is called patrapassianism. Or patrapassians. Um, modalistic. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-T-I-C. And patra. Passions, P-A-T-R-I-P-A-S-S-I-A-N-S. I'll explain that in just a few minutes. The modalists, as I'll call them, stressed, in contrast, at least partially with a dynamic monarchianisms, they stressed the divinity of Christ. And they stressed the oneness of God. Both of those things. One, the divinity of Christ. And two, the oneness or the unity of God. But what they said was, and perhaps some of you will remember this, they argued that the names Father, Son, and they didn't mention Holy Spirit generally, but they meant it. The names Father and Son are only different names different designations of the one and same one and the same god so there are difference those are differences only in name still the same one god just called by different names modalism so the father and son are distinguishable in name only there is no difference in person. They taught, the modalists did, that the one supreme God, by his own free will, 
became man so that the Son is the Father in the flesh. So that the Son is the Father in the flesh. There is no significant difference. It's a difference in name only. So that the Son is the Father. There is no distinction between Father and Son. They are the same God under a different name. The one God, but under a different name. The one God has three names. You know, you have friends, you have, they have a nickname, they have a, a name their mama calls them, and they have their formal name. You know? I'm not going to tell you what mine was. My mama. No. Anyway, we need to press on here. The first representative uh, is Praxius. Bubba. No, nobody called me Bubba. <laughs> There's only one Bubba. <laughs> now, anyway, Praxius. P-R-A-X-E-A-S. The first prominent representative of modalistic monarchianism. He came to Rome and he gained the support of the bishop, Bishop Victor of Rome. Now, Praxius, part of his uh, power of persuasion lies in the fact that he had been a confessor. Now, what was a confessor? That was a person who, during times of persecution, would, de would not deny Christ and would not sacrifice to the emperor and as a result was perhaps tortured or imprisoned but he didn't lose his life so he wasn't a martyr but he still is a person who maintained his allegiance to, Christ to Christianity. That's who Praxis was. Now he was very strongly opposed by Tertullian and Praxis kept arguing, kept appealing to passages like John 10.30, which say, I and the Father are one. And John 14.9, He that has seen me has seen the Father. So he appealed to Scripture for his modalistic viewpoint. And he argued that God the Father became man and as man, he got hungry, he thirsted, and above all, he suffered. God the Father suffered on the cross, and God the Father died on the cross. Under the name of the Son, just called, that was his new name at that point. And so Tertullian called him a Patripassian, because patri is the Latin for father, and passio means suffering. Get back to the idea that the one father under a different name became a human being and then suffered on the cross and died. Patripassian. That's how you spell it right there. Patripassian. Patri is the Latin term for father referring to God the Father in heaven. Passio refers to is a Latin phrase which Latin word that means to suffer. So he's looking at Praxius, Tertullian is, and he says, you're the one who believes that the Father suffered on the cross. 
although there's a different name attached to him. So he's communicating that. That's, that's the problem for him. This raises a very interesting question for me. Think about this. Is it possible for someone to die the death of a martyr and yet be a heretic? Praxis is a guy who was willing to go to the mat. He was willing to die, apparently, to be called a Christian. And yet, he maintains what is clearly heresy. Does that mean that perhaps there are people who have been willing to die for something and yet they really weren't Christians in the final analysis? Now, I mean, I guess it gets to this question, people sometimes are sincerely deceived, even deceived to the point of death. Now that I mean, historically, when you look at these kinds of situations, it's, I mean, we, we naturally and emotionally want to connect. And we did connect. We talked about the persecution period. I mean, I, I, mean, I thought we all were feeling the pain of, of some of these martyrs and how they, how they suffered and died. But just because someone died a martyr's death doesn't, in every case, necessarily mean that they were Christians. At least, Praxius gives us an example of someone who was willing to go to the mat and yet affirms something that is clearly uh, heretical. Warren? I think, I think one needs to be very careful at that point. You're right. I mean, there's a possibility that he could be both a Christian and a heretic. This, hey, I, it, it may sound strange, but I think you raise a, a, ver- a valid point. I mean, we're in a period now where, again, the New Testament canon is not, at least for every single person, uh, the same thing. And it's a period in which people are struggling with the most profound and the most difficult question in, in theology and the fact that he came up with what is at least as we understand it a clearly heretical viewpoint it seems to me that's at least a theoretical possibility let me move on here real quickly we've got about five minutes I want to couple, cover a couple of other situation persons just to get us moving there were several other modalists who came after Praxius Noetus of Smyrna Again, not Smyrna, but Smyrna. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm fighting a, a battle on that one. And two bishops of Rome tended toward modalistic views: Zephyrinus and Callistus the first. And I'll just mention the name, and I'll elaborate next time. Uh, perhaps the most original and most famous modalistic monarchian was a fellow from Libya. That doesn't bode well, does it? 
Anyway, his name was Sabellius. Sabellius. S-A-B-E-L-L-I-U-S. Sabellius, interestingly enough, had been converted to a modalistic viewpoint by the Bishop of Rome, Bishop Callistus I. And Sabellius was then later excommunicated by the Bishop of Alexandria, Dionysius, in 260 A.D. So Sabellius, converted by one bishop, excommunicated by another for his views in 260 A.D. Now, Sabellius differs from some of the other modalists by the fact that he not only includes the relationship of the Father and the Son, but he also includes reference to the Holy Spirit. That, in some sense, sets him apart from most of the discussion of this period, which was primarily concerned about the relationship of the Father and the Son. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.